every world became a garden, and for every garden there was a shepherd, and for all the shepherds a greater purpose. Open this world to the winding path, light the way where I wish to roam, across the seas of infinity for this weary traveler far from home. This is The Lost Tribe. Welcome back to The Lost Tribe. We continue this week with the reading of chapters 13 and 14 of the second book, Sins of the Father. As always, I am the author and your humble narrator, Peter Ivey. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share to keep me bringing the story to you. Thank you for listening, and let's begin. Chapter 13 Falkir and his companions moved slowly up to the ship, where it hung in the air. The snows were deep. This region was much like the place he was raised in Akala, along the border with Sigda. There were snows there, and mud in the snows, and blood in the mud. He sometimes wished that he could live in that time again, as who he was now, rather than the sniveling child that the Akala had dragged through their campaign after taking his mother for their pleasure and making her pregnant. They could have just drowned him at birth, as Falker might have were it his choice, but they did not. They had been weak. He wished he could have shown them all what true strength really was. Maybe that was what made him care for flesh some kind of weakness, some mercy that he hadn't yet burned from his soul. She moved quietly a few paces behind him, dressed in a heavier robe and high boots. She had a sickle at her side, covered in soot from the fire before they set out. This needed to be done quietly. Behind her, a select group of the most controlled of her wolves crept through the snows and through the trees. As they approached the ship, he signaled Flesh to come around the other side and bring her wolves up with her. He made his way as gingerly as he could up one of the mooring lines and lashed himself to the hull with his sharpest pair of knives. The ship swayed slightly, and there were footsteps on the deck above. Come sit down, Jack, Penny said. At least finish this hand. I wish Mick had taught the savage something besides poker. You mad because you're loose? Another unfamiliar voice said. You're good at that, eh? A child's game. You lose like child. You lose like child. <laughs> there were a few hasty footsteps, a scuffing sound of a chair being moved back quickly. Jack cried out in pain. Penny gasped. Yo, just a savage with no manners. That was his cue. Falkir pulled himself up onto the railing and over. There was a little lantern hung for warmth in a circle of chairs with a small low table in the center. Cards were scattered across the table and hot mugs of something spicy and sweet were sitting there steaming in the cold. Jack was standing, wiping something from the side of his face. Penny was sitting, wrapped up in a heavy blanket, her gaze locked on Falkir as he crouched off in the darkness. Their captor, a giant black-bearded man in furs, held an empty mug in his hand by one finger and looked very pleased with himself. A large, heavy axe was leaning against his chair, well within his reach. He seemed to notice the change in the air, or something, and tossed the mug in Falkir's direction. Falkir took no notice of it and let him go for his axe. Falkir, Penny whispered. Jack spun towards him and pulled a small knife from a holster up one of the sleeves of his jacket. Falkir smiled at him. What did he expect to do with such a tiny weapon? He chuckled, pulling one of his larger daggers and tossed it to Jack. If it makes you feel any better, Jack, 
take it with my blessing. He smiled, picked up the dagger, and dropped it into a low, balanced stance. One weapon pointed at Falkir's eye, the other at his gut. He liked Jack. He was a good killer. You might want to rethink your position after taking in all of the facts, Falkir said, nodding at Penny. Penny was stock still, her eyes locked on the peripheral. Flesh was behind her two paces, her sickle in her hand. Jack spared look and turned back to him. He dropped the dagger and the knife to the deck and moved to protect Penny. He nodded at Flesh, and she let him join her. Are you here to kill us then? Jack asked, not taking his eyes from Falkir. Menom desires your presence. We are here to take you back home. The bearded man stepped forward, axe in hand. I think not. The bearded man had a look of absolute disregard, looking back and forth from Flesh to Falkir and smiling broadly. You are Falkir, truly. Yes, and who are you, old stew of the kingdom at bay? Simi, some call me bear. It is honor to meet you. Mick told me you were tough, good with a knife. He said he with people. No worries, I am no judge. Falkir was fascinated. This brute actually looked at him as some kind of equal. He wondered if the arrogance would make the meat bitter, or merely sweeten his night with the relish of this man's death. He could hardly tell what kind of cut he could yield once he dug through the piles of fur. Menon is a monster, Falkir, Penny said, trembling. Worse than anything you could imagine, if only you could see- I've seen what kind of monster he is. Believe me, I've seen more than you on that account. I have little choice in the matter who I follow now. Neither do you. The wolves climbed onto the deck from their positions around the ship. They surrounded the circle of Falkir's party on the deck. Enough talking, Simi said, raising his axe and pointing at Falkir. You're right, but I promised our men that we would eat well tonight. In addition to my sins, I do not wish to add lie to the pile. You understand, of course, that the menu is very limited. Simi smiled at him and spun his axe in one hand. Falkir whistled, and the wolves began to tighten the circle. Chapter 14 The hallway was deserted, too. I moved through with caution, scanning the walls and alcoves of the hall for places where Falkir or one of the wolves might be waiting to ambush me. I stayed out of the direct line of sight of the room ahead as well, not wanting to get burned by Nicholas's fire. I heard motion in the large dining hall ahead. There was a snarling and screaming of many voices, and in the mix I could hear the perfect hum of a single blade. I had heard it before, and each hum was punctuated by the absence of another snarling voice. Otomo was really taking it to the enemy. As I reached the dining hall entrance, the sounds of combat suddenly ceased. I came around the corner, holding my sword up in a high stance to slaughter whatever fell beneath it. At my feet were the dismembered and disemboweled corpses of several of the disgusting blackened monsters that we had encountered outside. One of them was still stumbling around, aimless and dying, his arm missing. Otomo sat in the middle of the room, cross-legged, his sword stuck in the wooden floor of the hall. His clothes were torn up, his face covered in the grime and gore of combat. Otomo, what the... He raised his arm and pointed upward, above my head to a point behind me, between two stained-glass windows. I nearly dropped my sword when I saw what he was pointing at. No. The thing that hung between the windows no longer resembled the person that I had once known. 
His face was mutilated, torn and wrenched out of shape. His limbs the same, except they now ended in blackened claws. From each hand dangled a chain, and on each chain was a skull impaled on a hook. One skull was dark-haired, and in the hair were shells from a world I had never known. The other had a mocking look to it, and a goatee that was distinctive and infamous. Lethia and Nicholas. The only clue to the identity of the body was a hooded tabard, shredded but still white in places where the blood and darkness had not blighted it. Get up. Get up, Atomo. Get up and help me get him down, I said, my heart filling with stones. Atomo got up, and we moved to take Apostos down from where our enemy had strung him up. I moved to take hold of one of his ruined arms. Otomo smacked my hand away. What? Otomo's brow was creased as if trying to listen. Pick! Apostles' one good eye opened. It was a milky white, and it spun around frantically, searching for something. His limbs twitched, his now clawed hands flexing, and dark blood oozed from the wounds at his chest. His breathing was ragged and raspy. He was now more human in his suffering than he had ever been. For some reason, it made me feel uneasy. Menon had corrupted him, turned him into the same thing that Lyconis had been before Apostos himself had destroyed him. I, I'm here, Apostos. His eyes stopped moving around and focused on me. I'm sorry. He knows everything, Mick. What do you mean? What does he know? All about us. About you. He knows what you carry. Does he know where the others are? I'm so sorry, he said, and stopped moving. The blood stopped flowing, his eyes closed. I heard footsteps. I spun around to see Henry being helped into the hall by Dacoum. I breathed a sigh of relief as Casey walked in behind them, slightly limping. They all stopped when they saw Tomo and I. Then they saw the body. Who the hell is... Oh! Henry's eyes went wide, and he was silent. Casey ran up to me, and I held her back as she tried to reach up to Apostos. Let me go, Mick! He was my friend, too! You can't, Casey. I'm sorry he's been corrupted. She drew her gun. No, you know that I'm the only one who's been into suffering. The sword was made to destroy the darkness. Casey backed off. Henry and Dacoum joined us. The problem is that he told Manon where we are, and a lot of other things. I said. You guys have got to go back to the ship before he gets there. Make sure Jack and Penny are safe. That was your plan, Mick! We failed! Now you're sending off somewhere else? Henry said, his voice strained and angry. It ain't his fault, Casey said, taking my hand. How could he know? You sent Apostos here, Mick. You kept your secrets, followed all of this on faith, and now Apostos is going to die if he's not ready. My blood boiled. I knew some of what he was saying was the truth, but not all of it. For all we knew, Manon was already heading to take out Jack and Penny. I reached up and pulled the chained heads from Apostos' hands. Lethia and Nicholas, I said, shaking the chains of Henry. That leaves Falcon in flesh, plus Manon. See a trend, Henry? Get the hell back to the ship! Casey looked at the heads spinning on the chains and grabbed Nicholas. Well, that's one thing off my to-do list. She turned and fired her gun, opening up a portal to Taroge. Henry glared at me and then staggered over to the portal with Takum. Casey turned to Otomo. Coming. What I said before holds true. The kingdom is not destroyed, and so I fight on. 
Tomo pulled his swords from the floor and walked off to join the others. See you soon? <sighs> One last thing to do here, I told her, and I turned back to Apostos. I heard her walk away behind me. The portal closed and I was alone with my dead companion. I drew my sword. I failed you, and I'm sorry for not understanding, Apostos. I'm sorry for before. I didn't understand you were just trying to protect the worlds. I heard a creaking above me, and I looked up to see that Apostos' eye was open, and he was straining at the hooks and chains that held him to the wall. His eye held no life in it, though, and it was becoming blacker as he struggled. Hello, Mick. Such a pleasure to finally meet you. I raised the sword to Apostos. Let him die, you bastard! Get out of him! Ooh, poor old Apostos isn't here anymore, buddy. He's gone over the rainbow. Move on. It's just you and me now. So you're Manel. After a fashion. Hell of a show you put on here. I watched through my many eyes as you and your friends hacked and crushed the pathetic creatures that once populated the city. Does it please you to know that you and yours have killed more people than I ever have? I considered his words. It was a mercy that those people died, wasn't it? What do you want, Manon? Well, that's the thing. This was merely to get your attention. More of a handshake, really. I do have a couple things you might want back, though. Damn it. He was way ahead of us now. Jack and Penny. He cackled. Apostles' jaw cracked slightly with the effort. Yes. Your friends went quietly, except for the barbarian type you left to guard them. He was very stubborn. Is he alive? Menon smiled. You rotten bastard! How oh, now, Mick? You shouldn't have left him to try and stop my new friends. As you know, they don't have much use for the weak. I screamed and drove the sword into Apostles' chest. Menon's face lit up with green fire and he howled with laughter as he burned. Before I could free the sword, he reached down, breaking free of the chains, and grabbed my arms! I felt darkness surge into me. I fed all the energy I could muster to fight him as he tried to get inside me. I see that we are not alone after all. <laughs> I see you, old friend. Then, as I began to lose my grip, a white energy began to burn inside of Apostos. Manon cried out and I poured on the juice. The white light began to enter me as well. I pulled the sword free. Apostos' body arched and screamed in agony as it seemed to explode with green and white fires. In a moment, there was nothing left but ashes. I fell down on my knees. My limbs seemed to jump and twitch with energy. Something was very wrong here, something different. I fell forward, leaning on the sword. I had to get back to my friends. I had to help them. You can't even help yourself, Nick, like Conus said, stepping forward from the shadows to my right. What makes you think you can help them? Lyconis was different now, clad in a stained white robe over dark chainmail. What are you doing here? I thought you were restricted. What are you doing here? I thought you were restricted to visit hours in my dreams. He was, said a voice off to my left. But well, it's a brother's four, except to elevate each other in their time of need. A shimmering white form blazed into my vision in the far left corner. I shielded my eyes, and the form dimmed as the figure stepped forward. Apostos? He appeared as he always had. White robes, chain mail, blonde hair down his back, and a lion made in silver upon his breastplate. 
What the hell was going on? Was I dead too? So, how do you feel about sharing your head with both of us? Like Onus asks, reaching down to take my hand to help me up. I took his hand. It was solid, and he had a strong grip. I turned away from him and walked over to Apostos. He merely stood there, looking at me with his usual look of amusement. You're in my head, too? I should be charging you guys rent. Well, after Manon possessed me and taunted you, I decided to try and escape from my ruined form. As you know, I was with Father when he transferred all of you into the souls we sent out into the world, and I helped him to do so. I gambled that I could do the same thing with myself. Most of my essence, my energy, was released when you used the sword, but I smuggled enough in to retain most of my personality. Holy shit. Why the hell did you do that? It's crowded enough in here. Well, you owe me for one thing. That was stupid sending me blind into Manon's clutches. Mind you, I doubt you realize that that actually happened there, but nevertheless, that was a dumb move. I also had enough time while Manon was inside me to get a good look at his mind, too. I learned a lot, and I figured you might want to know what is really going on. I smiled to myself, thinking back to a time when he wouldn't tell me a damn thing. I felt a little relieved that maybe, just maybe, someone might be able to tell me what the situation truly is. I was tired of fighting in the dark, risking my friends and my life for a whisper and a promise. So, what is it that I don't know? First things first, we must find the others. They will want to know as well. I doubt it will make any of you happier to know, but things have changed for all of us. middle of a bright constellation of blue spheres, gigantic and ponderous in intent, sits a palace made of shining marble, a solid dome in the middle of it, ringed by a succession of towers made of the same luminous material. At the top of the dome there is a crystalline cap that shines with an overwhelming green light. Inside that dome, seated at a large throne ringed by entrances from every tower, is an old man. His beard is long, his hair billowing and white. From his eyes burn the fiery light of all creation. He is father, and he is mighty. At his side, he rests his hand upon a small iron box decorated with glowing symbols that overlap each other, and twist about as if alive. With each strumming of father's fingers, the symbols twitch. His patience is eternal, but his wrath often outreaches it. This day is typical in an eternity of days, and he waits. Footsteps begin to echo from the entrance off to the left of the throne, and father turns to see his arrival. A shepherd appears. An older man with short dark hair and flat gray eyes enters the chamber. He has a long white tabard that is covered by golden plate armor, with the image of a lion etched onto its breastplate. The chamber echoes slightly with his steps as his sandaled feet strike the floor. He stops directly before the throne and bows down. Rise, Menon, my son, Father says. Menon rises and stands quietly before the throne. You are my favorite son, Menon, Father says, smiling benevolently. And it is to you I entrust a most precious gift to give to our people. I am honored, Father. Take this box that I have here and bring it to your people. Open it for them and let them feast of its bounty. This is my will, Menon. 
your will be done, Father. On one of those blue spheres, Menon stands in the middle of a rolling sea of yellow grass that moves with the gentle breeze of a west wind. Around him, hundreds of men and women, dusky-skinned and dressed in colorful clothes rendered from base textiles and dyed with pigments, come to attend the one who has guided them, and given them wisdom from on high. Menon's heart fills with pride as he watches them come. In his hands, the symbols on the iron box given to him by father literally writhe with energy, as if excited by an internal, eager will. He suspects nothing of what is to come. I have brought you all a gift from my father, Menon says. Gather close so that you all may share in it. And so they gather around him. Fathers taking the hands of mothers, mothers taking the hands of their children, families heeding the words of their bright and holy benefactor. Menon smiles at them and begins to undo the latches of the box. The symbols twitch for one last time and fly apart in fragments that fade into wondrous golden twinkling. He opens the box wide. At first there is nothing inside, only a dark, empty hole. And his people look at each other, their wonder turning to apprehension. Then a whistling comes up from the hole, and a giant gushing volume of black smoke shoots up into the air from the box. Menon drops the box and stares up in horror at the dark thing that seems to hang in the air in a manner that seems predatory and terrible. He moves to get between them and the thing, but is too fast, and too many. The dark thing splits into several tendrils of blackness that swoop down swift to get a hold of as many victims as it can. Menon is swept aside by the fury of their dark rushing, and struggles to rise, watching as the tendrils begin entering the mouths, ears, and other orifices of his charge. They scream, fitfully and in terror, as the blackness fills them. All those gathered collapse and fall to the earth. Menon weeps, watching the dark thing disappear. He moves to and from each person and finds that they live. He shakes them, trying to revive them. He lifts their eyelids and gasps. The darkness is within them, swirling in their eyes like dark worms. They stir. They begin moaning and growling. They look at each other with wild eyes and they do not seem to know each other. Mother shoves away child. Husband turns on wife. And brother turns against brother. In moments, the growling becomes screams of feral challenge. They begin to tear at each other. Menon screams for them to stop. One of the men leaps at Menon and begins to beat his fists against his lion breastplate. Menon pushes him away, and he keeps coming. Soon, many of them start to throw themselves against Menon, clawing, biting, tearing, and beating at him. It is too much for him, and he reacts as he has never done before. His hands reached out to crush throats, brick bones, and pulverize flesh. He is an engine of violence propelled by his fear. In moments, none of his people remain standing, many of them brought down by each other's mischief, but the rest consumed him and all struggling to survive. He stands in the middle of them, again, his hands and tabard covered in blood and black ichor, his breastplate streaked with gore. Small rivers of blackness drip down his chin, and he feels a bitter taste in his mouth. He turns his face to the sky. What have you done? What did you make me do? There is no answer. Menon falls to his knees, and he feels the darkness working through his very being. A whistling begins to rise, within him as well. It carries a whisper, and Menon cocks his head to listen. Visions of blood, black fields full of burning fires, and broken cities fill his mind. 
He begins to feel a new sensation begin to work its way through his core. His face began to distort as a new and terrible revelation surged through his being. He lifted his face to the sky. Outside the blue spheres, and beyond the bright luminous palace, a man's shape appears. He is naked, bearing none of his previous adornment. His body is badly wounded and leaking black fluids into the emptiness of space. The veins beneath his skin begin to seize and pop in the vacuum. A long spiral of fluid spurts from his mouth and twists away. His fingers, once beautiful and pink, now blackened and clawed, reached out to the spheres. An act of hunger that cannot be sated. He seems to realize this as he feels death take hold of him and he curls up into a ball. His eyes are still open, frozen forever from the cold outside. He sees all he ever knew in these last moments. A life of duty, unbound. A brotherhood, broken. A secret, locked away. As all comprehension disappears from his eyes, a black sphere the size of the blue ones appears behind the drifting body. It gets larger as it moves closer to him. He sees it, the seconds of existence ticking away to zero as the surface overwhelms him. He feels the cold being taken away from his body, and the whispers that spoke to him before have come again. As the black sphere disappears from view, his passenger begins to dream inside his broken shell, and a new and awful purpose comes into him to replace the one he had lost. Once again, thank you all for listening and tuning into The Lost Tribe, Sins of the Father. Join me next week when the story continues, and remember to follow this podcast and share it to keep the story going.